Hey everyone, welcome back to Adherent Apologetics. Super pumped to join us today to have Dr. Gray Sutanto. Um, he's a professor at Reformed um, Theological Reformed, yeah, Reformed Theological Seminary down in Washington, D.C. Uh, today we're gonna be talking about a man. His name is Herman Bavank. Uh, we're talking about like his epistemology and God and knowledge and all kinds of super cool stuff. So Gray, thank you for joining me. How are you today? Great, Zach. I'm very glad to be here. Yeah, I'm super pumped for this conversation, and I'm excited because I don't know exactly where it's going to go, um, which to me is super exciting because it just leads to all kinds of like fun things. So, great to start things off. Do you want to talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do and what got you interested in topics like Herman Bavink? Yeah, great. So, um, as, like you said there, I, I teach systematic theology here at Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. Um, I became a Christian when I was 17. I was an atheist before then. Um, in Jakarta, Indonesia. Then I went to college at Biola University. I took a double major in philosophy and biblical studies. Uh, that led me to my Master's of Arts in Religion in Westminster Theological Seminary. And then finally, I did my PhD years at the University of Edinburgh on Herman Bavink. So um, what led me to this sort of path thing was just one thing led to another. I thought that I was going to become a pastor or a youth pastor at first. Um, and then through the encouragement of particular mentors, they encouraged me to, to, to pursue academic studies while still having in the back of my mind, I'm going to be church planning and pastoring in Jakarta, Indonesia. But then one thing led to another again, and that led me here. So I, I really thank the providence of the Lord in causing me to be able to teach in this role that I have now. But I ended up studying Herman Bobbing for my PhD studies because I saw in him uh, a few very attractive sort of um, uh attributes let's say with regard to his work so i think he combined the best of historic orthodoxy um with an engagement with modernity if that makes sense so usually i think when people think about orthodoxy they think about a sort of separatistic principle of leaving the world and just fighting secularism there's this binary between orthodoxy and the world if that makes sense but bobbing showed that the more orthodox you become the more attractive you should be in a sense because the world is Filled with people made in the image of God, exposed to God's general revelation. And so because of your classical Christian orthodoxy and training, you should be able to address modernity's questions in a more satisfying way. So that's what ultimately led me to Herman Bobbing. And he showed that. He modeled that really well. So maybe we'll start there. Yeah. So maybe you want to give a little bit of, of like a brief like biographical sketch of like her, who Herman Bobbing is to start things off? Yeah. Herman Bobbing was born 1854. He died in 1921. And usually, I think, when people think about um, Bavink, they first think about the more popular name, Abraham Kuyper, right? Abraham Kuyper is known to be sort of this um, reformed theologian who was also sort of a prime, well, not sort of, a prime minister, a journalist, a professor, uh, a scholar, all at the same time. But he was also controversial in a lot of ways. He wrote very occasional texts, addressed political issues all the time, and and. He's less of a systematic thinker, but he was the more popular one because of translations. And Bavink was at first seen as his right-hand man, so to speak. But Bavink is now being seen more and more because of the recent translations as the main engine or the main systematizer of the Kuyperian movement. And this movement has been called Neo-Calvinism. I've got a book coming out on that coming January 2023. 20, uh, and and Neo-Calvinism basically, again, refers to that thesis that by drawing from the older Calvinism, you can engage with modernity in a very new and fresh way. So the neo refers to updating and engaging Calvinism with the issues and philosophical context of modernity. 
that Calvinism has resources to face these issues. Mm. Yeah, go ahead. So I was going to say, so like when we're looking at like Herman Bavink and what he's trying to do, um, he's one of the big faces behind neo-Calvinism, um, which is like saying like, hey, now like Bavink's here in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, so we're, we're, we're 300 years removed really from the origins of the Reformation and like John Calvin and things like this. Um, and what he's trying to do is like use this Calvinism and show like, hey, how it can apply to like the issues of like the modern period as he's coming up. Um, and he passes like right after the end of World War One, which really pushes us into like the modern period of history. Um, do I have yeah. that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And then to give more of a context, they were both writing in the Netherlands. Um, they both started this university called the Free University of Amsterdam. And um, they were both concerned to show that, again, by, by grounding our thought in orthodoxy, we can actually satisfy every longing of the human heart. And that manifests itself in the formation of this university to show that Christian principles can permeate a Christian worldview can inform every discipline because ultimately knowledge is one organic unity and that knowledge has its center in theology, if that makes sense. And, and ultimately theology and all the fields of life depend on God's revelation. Um, so, so Bavink was really trying to show and vindicate the perennial relevance of Christianity for a modern context. And what, are, what do I mean by modern issues? Well, issues like pluralism, issues like the, the, the rise of secularity, the awareness that our view, our worldview is just one option among many, and that we can't just take for granted that Christianity is relevant. We need to actually show it and vindicate it. Those are the sort of issues. Mm. Yeah, that's super helpful. Um, thanks, Greg. So when we're looking at like Herman Bavank and what he's trying to do, um, what he's trying to do is like say like, hey, like we have like these modern issues um, that he's dealing with. And he's saying like, instead of starting with maybe like the issues and thinking about like maybe like how a Christian can like answer and like pull certain passages from the Bible, is Bavank more trying to say like, hey, let's start with like theology proper as a Christian, and, like use these Christian principles about how to live our lives. And that's going to help us like kind of as we go through these things, like how is like, do you understand what I'm saying here? Yeah, yeah. So you're asking a question about method, perhaps, right? Mm -hmm. How do we actually do that? Yeah. Um, well, that, that's a great question. I think, um, well, in terms of the modern conditions, I think what Bobbing and Kuyper would recognize is that um, before modernity, Christianity sort of took for granted that it is a perennially relevant sort of telos for human life. But after modernity and this rise of the secularizing space, this idea that theology is only relevant for the church, but not so much for the public life, Christianity can no longer take for granted that it has something to say for public existence. So I think the aim is, is to show that, that without Christianity, the public sphere um, would, would be groundless and would be sort of unanchored and looking for a stable foundation and end, right? And so Christianity's task is, is to vindicate itself in the sense of, of going back to the root of knowledge, going back to the root of life, which is in revelation. And it's to show that without the existence of God and his revelation, we would be able to, we would be unable to account for all of these fields of life that we first took for granted. So they were very critical of this growing sacred secular divide. Right. And they're wanting to show that it is by by the articulation of God's revelation. That's the foundation that we need to ground and to account for the intelligibility of all of these sacred. I'm sorry, all of these quote unquote secular spaces, if that makes sense. So I mean, there's so many different angles. I'm, I'm kind of 
hesitating to take it into one direction or another because there's so many different directions for us to take it. But I think um, if we're thinking about sort of my area of work, which is God and knowledge and the rise of neo-Calvinism in the context of the university, we can take it to that sort of epistemological theory of knowledge sort of direction, perhaps. Yeah, that'd be great. So like, what are like, when we're looking at like from involving, um, you talk about like, there's like these two very important aspects to his epistemology. Um, so like, do you want to kind of just like lay those out? Yeah. So one of the ways in which, well, there's two important aspects and the important aspects are the structure of the discipline of human knowledge. So he argues without, you know, without theology, the university becomes dissolvable into a cacophony of different fields that isn't actually united by anything. And then the, the second epistemological issue is a subject object relation. How can mental ideas refer to object of reality? Mental ideas are inherently representational, conceptual, but reality is physical and not mentalized, if that makes sense, not conceptualized. So modern thought, Bavik would argue, has posited this gap between the subject, the world of mental ideas on the one hand, and the object of physical reality on the other. There seems to be a disconnect between the two. And there's what he calls an ever-growing gap between the two. So we need to account for how can our ideas connect to the, to the, to the world outside of us. So the first issue is the unity of the fields of the university on the one hand. And the second issue on the other is the union between subject and object or the, the correspondence between subject and object. Those are the two broad fields that he wanted to, to, to talk about. So maybe let's just like like try to like understand these issues a little bit more with like what Bob Vink's really trying to get at. Yeah. Um, so with the structure of human knowledge, um, one thing you said that was really interesting to me is like like Bob Vink wants to say like theology kind of like unites all these different fields. Yeah. Yeah. So he argues that that scripture is not a manual of the sciences. And yet scripture is is providing the foundation for theology. And theology is a universal science, what he calls a a science that speaks into all the other disciplines, right? So he's very nuanced about this because he wants to be very careful about sort of restoring a kind of renewed biblicism. This idea that every science and every academic discipline has to draw all of its content from the Bible alone, right? So think about, you know, um, the very worst caricatures of a Christian university or like a, a suspicion of all secular learning, and everything is rooted back in a proof text of the Bible. And, and Bobbing is very nuanced. He's not arguing for that. He's arguing that scripture is not a manual for the sciences, but because scripture is the foundation for theology and theology is a universal science, without theology, that sort of anchor gets lost. Okay, so, so he, he argues in a very um, persuasive way, I would argue, in the Christian worldview, where he says that, Science, and when he means by science, is all critical learning. All critical learning starts from sense perception. And sense perception becomes formalized in investigations, rational judgments, and philosophy, and the, the empirical sciences, and so on. And once you actually take a look at each of these disciplines, there's going to be norms that you encounter in every discipline. So sense perception leads us to the formation of these different disciplines. And in those disciplines, there's common norms that you see in each of them. Norms of value, value judgments, norms of goodness, norms of beauty, norms of truth, right? So whether you're in history or in philosophy, notions of truth and goodness keep coming back. So when you're doing history, for instance, you're not going to just write about every little detail. You have to make judgments about what are the important historical events, which events are good, which events are 
detrimental for history. So you're using normative judgments all the time. And when you're doing philosophy, you're asking questions about, is this account true or not? Is this good for me to say? Is this something of a valuable end that I should try for? So once you actually start to consider um, these different disciplines, there's actually a unity that undergirds all of it, the true, the good, and the beautiful, right? And the true, the good, and the beautiful ultimately points back to the domain of theology, that in theology, you're encountering the God who has revealed himself. And so therefore, this God has shown us the true norms, the true and the good and the beautiful, if that makes sense. Hmm. So that's why theology anchors every discipline, because every discipline cannot evade the question of normativity. And that is rooted in a transcendent God. Once you take that away, you're going to have to account for truth and goodness and beauty elsewhere. And where are you going to account that for? And, and we don't have to talk about this, but, but I just want to mention it at this point. But he says, once you take God away, you're going to start to find and locate a substitute for God. The true and the good and the beautiful are no longer going to be grounded in God, but they're going to be grounded in humanity. But humanity is too broad to be practically useful. So usually what happens is I'm not going to ground the truth and the good and the beautiful in just humanity in general, but in my specific human people my specific people group. And in the context of the rise of the 20th century, that people group was going to be the German nation. Mm -hmm. So he argued actually that the rise of German fascism and German nationalism was precisely in the eradication of the transcendent God. And now they need to find a replacement for this God to ground the true and the good and the beautiful. And that's going to be in a particular people group. And so philosophy, natural science, history, they're all going to take their foundations from that culture instead of the true biblical God. So in one book, in one stroke, in a very short book, Christian Worldview, he argues for the necessity of the doctrine of God and revelation and theology for all of the disciplines in metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics, and also shows the alternative to that, the disastrous consequences of rejecting theism. Mm -hmm. That's super interesting, right? And it's funny because like, I was literally, I've been reading this book and I was literally reading it like right as I was waiting for you to come on. Um, right. The book is here and they find it here. It's called A World Without Jews. Um, it's called by Alan Cofino. It's like the Nazi imagination from persecution to genocide. So what he talks about in this book um, is he talks about literally what you're talking about right here is like how did this mindset um, of the German yeah. fascists, the Nazis come about where they're like, um, they come to this ability to like where they, they decide to kill all these Jews. Um, this horrendous thing that, that's the Holocaust. Yeah. Um, and one thing that I was interesting that Kefina was talking about, um, and I was reading this like just today, is he talks about how with the Nazis, um, kind of what they believed was, is that in some sense, like your mind is like integrally connected to like your body. Um, and what that, or like they, they call it your spirit. Um, and like who you are is kind of a product of like your genes. Um, so they were very focused, obviously, on like the Aryans. And it was like ha having that idea of like the identity of like their body being like pure, like Aryan blood. And from mm -hmm. that, we get like this, like this German spirit, which, which they thought was like this, like what they needed to like, um, as like pure and whatever, um, which is really interesting. Cause it kind of goes like exactly with like what Bob Inc is saying, like, is like they're, they're replacing, um, their theology, like their, like their idea of like being like image bearers with like that idea. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so that's, that's, he would argue that's a direct consequence of rejecting theism because the human mind at heart. As I mentioned, you know, it needs and longs for the true, the good, and the beautiful. Mm -hmm. And without God, it's going to find some other replacements, right? So this is the Romans 1 material of 
um, if we don't give thanks to God, we're going to elevate creaturely things and imbue them with, with ultimate significance, right? So um, that's his argument for that in the Christian worldview. And in my book, God and Knowledge, um, which was published by Bloomsbury in 2020, I tried to just really detail out all of his arguments with regard to the necessity of theology as a discipline for the university. And that was one of his main arguments, that, that ultimately all of these universities become cacophonous. They lose their footing because they need the true and the good and the beautiful. And he, he argues that human knowledge is ultimately, um, given what God has revealed in the scriptures, a single organic unity. Mm -hmm. God is triune. God is one and many. God is one and three at the same time. God is simple. And yet he exists as three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So human knowledge, when, when tethered to revelation, could strive for organic unity. There's a diversity of fields, and yet there's a unity at the core, which is theology. And that mirrors the Trinity in that sense. So that's just what he's going to argue. And without the triune faith, you're not, you're not going to end up with that sort of organic unity. Mm -hmm. Super cool how like theology, um, like Bobbing talks about how like like you, you're saying like it unites, like it unites like history and humanity um, and like science and all these fields and they come together like with that grounding of like theology, which can kind of like be like the underpinning of everything else. So. Right, right. And theology does not, not by dictating to all the other sciences what they need to say. But it does give a catalyst for unity and a justification for their coexistence. Mm. So, so Bobbing argues it's not theology is not a tyrant queen of the sciences; it is a servant queen of the sciences that empowers mm. the field to come together. Yeah. Mm. So it's almost like it's not like like we're saying like Bobbing's not like hey you read like Genesis one and two and you got your whole like understanding of like everything um, yeah. from like the origins and it explains all the little intricate details of like, right. like chemistry and things like that. But it's more of like it informs like these general ideas of like God creating the world and God being sovereign over the world, um, yep. things like and, that. Yep, and warranting therefore the coexistence of all the fields of science. Right? Why do we develop the fields of of scholarship? Is because we're we're fulfilling the cultural mandates of Genesis two. And mm. one, and and ultimately, the Bible gives us um, not everything that we need to know about everything. The Bible is sufficient for doctrine and life, but the Bible does give us, disclose to us what what he would call in the Reformed tradition will call the principia for all of life, um, which is the norms, the principles for all of life, without disclosing the contents of everything that we need to know. If that makes sense. Yeah. 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 That's super helpful. Thanks, Greg. So we talked about like the structure of human knowledge. Um, and like theology serving as like this uniting thing, which is unites all these fields that comes from the Bible. And then like you talked about the second thing, which is like the subjects and objects. Yeah. Um, so so what what exactly is going on here? Because I'm trying to get my mind around this. Yeah. So so this is actually the way in which my, my book was was divided. The first half of the book was just about the structure of human knowing first four chapters. And the last half of the book was about the subject object relation. So when you read Boving in so many different places, in Reformed dogmatics, certainty of faith, Christian worldview, philosophy of revelation, he defines knowledge simply as the correspondence between subject and object, correspondence between subject and object, namely that there are mental representations that communicate to us, that represent the outside world. And, and he, he develops what he, he calls a, a sort of critical realist model, right? So... It's realist in the sense of we can know the outside world, but it's critical in the sense of we know in a way that is finite and by way of finite representations. And the reason why he argues that our mental representations 
can convey to us the content of the outside world is because God and the second person, the Trinity, the Logos, connects both subject and object. And because the subject and the object both connect to one another because both partake in an organic existence. So think about the structure of, of human knowledge as in the first part as um, an organic unity of the field of science coming together, theology at the center, and then the subject object can connect with one another because even though these are heteronomous realities, the subject is different from the object, the object is a physical thing, the subject has mental ideas representing the object. The reason why there could be a connection is because both partake in an organic universe that is sovereignly controlled by the logos, if that makes sense. So it's a very theological foundation for why the subject can connect to the object. And I think maybe listeners listening to that would be like, why is this such a profound insight? Well, well, again, if, if we consider modern philosophy, they've, they've eradicated that intrinsic connection between ideas on the one hand and objects on the other, right? Because um, uh, the basic, I could go into the nitty gritty of, of human Kant on this, but but what Bobbing was recognizing, and I'm trying to boil it down into a very brief line or two, mm-hmm. is, is that if I can put it colloquially or I can put it sort of roughly, objects are not inherently conceptualized, right? When you take a look at this table, for instance, it's really just a collection of atoms or quarks that kind of, you know, are, re- are side by side, they're really close in proximity to one another. You can sort of boil it down to its material, material constitutive parts. The mm-hmm. fact that it is a table and considered as a table is not an intrinsic feature of what the table is, at least for modern thought, right? It's actually imposed by the mind to consider something as one thing and not many, to consider it as a table and not a chair, it's actually um, categorized by the human mind. So, so this idea of transcendental idealism, that things outside don't have any intrinsic meaning that you're seeing, but rather they need to be conformed to the categorization of the human understanding is a move that was very popular because of Immanuel Kant, right? And so the question here is, if we never know the thing in itself, and we're constantly just interpreting, perceiving, processing everything by way of the human mind, how can I know that my representation of the object is not actually uh, um, um, conveying to me an illusion? How do I know that I'm not just seeing the way my mind works, but I'm actually seeing the thing outside of the mind? Does that make sense? So so, so Bavink would argue that that this this process is completely wrongheaded in the sense of, of when we're conceiving the object, right? Um, what if the object itself has been patterned by the word of God? In other words, when you're seeing a tree, therefore, you're not the one processing the tree and imposing unity upon the tree or treeness upon the tree, but rather the tree itself was, quote unquote, pre-categorized by the logos. The logos has given meaning to the tree. And so when you are representing the tree in your mind, um, you're representing the tree as it really is. Does that make sense? So that so that your conceptualization of the tree is not conceptualizing an otherwise recalcitrant, non-mental, non-conceptualized, non-meaningful object. You're actually representing the tree as what it really is. Does that make sense? So, so, so the whole world is manifesting the 
the ideas of a triune God, the whole world is manifesting the meaningfulness of that divine decree, which gave meaning to everything. And human beings, therefore, are thinking God's thoughts after him when he's recognizing trees as trees, humanity as humanity, and the object as the sort of object that it is. So mm. without this, this Trinitarian theological revelational foundation, and, and modern philosophy has tried to go from that ground up, just let's not talk about God, let's just give an account of perception from the ground up. They have to take into account that, that therefore, okay, so the material world is, is a recalcitrant, a for, you know, amorphous, non-conceptualized thing, and yet the human mind constantly wants to conceptualize and make sense of everything. But meaning isn't actually there. Meaning is imposed by the mind. But Bhavik says, no, meaning is already there. We're, we're recognizing it. And so when we're, when we're recognizing it for what it is, we're thinking God's thoughts after him is because God and the Logos can connect the subject to the object. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I'm tracking with you, Cray. Uh, Gray, I'd love to try to um, break this down a little bit. Sure. So going back to the table, yeah, we think of a table and like I see like this desk in front of me and I'm just like, oh, like there's just a desk right here. Right. Um, and that's my mind kind of like putting those concepts on this. Yeah. Um, but if we want to really break it down, you'd have to say, tell a story of like, oh, well, there's these quarks and these atoms that are like really close to each other. Um, and that's really all that's there if we're thinking from a, a material perspective. But it's really our minds that kind of impose on this, like, hey, this is a desk. Um, this can support things and things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's similar like when we're doing like theology um, and we're, we're thinking about this holistically, we have to think that like it's not really just our minds here, but it's really like God's mind and God who's like um, we don't want to like uh, be like panentheist and say like all this material stuff's always been there and like god's just kind of like rearranging it and like giving it meaning but saying that like god's creating everything um and like provide like providing the concepts of like what these things are or like how how is that working so so in in a reformed theological framework everything that that unfolds in history is the unfolding of the eternal decree of god right so Mm -hmm. in other words the reason why things are the way they are is because god foreknew everything by way of his free knowledge and so everything that comes to pass has is is the unfolding of this eternal plan in the mind of God. So different ways you can articulate that. In some places, Bobbing calls, you know, Bobbing appeals to the doctrine of divine ideas for this, that, that everything that unfolds in creation is patterned after a divine idea, right? So um so so think about it this way. So when I when I consider an object in front of me, the object comes first, and then I conceive of an idea in light of the object. So before I met you, Zach, I didn't have an idea of what you are. And now that I've met you, I have an idea that reflects who you are, but who you are is always greater than my idea of you, right? But in God, however, it's flipped. The object Mm -hmm. outside of God actually comes from a divine idea first, right? Because God created everything out of nothing, ex nihilo. And so God um, has an idea. And so God actualizes the existence of that thing on the basis of an idea so when when the thing exists when god created a tree for instance right that tree points back to an eternal creative idea within god if that makes sense or an eternal plan of god let's just say and 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 god just chooses to give that tree existence but the idea of the tree comes from the mind of god himself and so the reason why we can understand the tree is because the tree itself um comes from from god and the reason why we can understand the universe is because the universe, therefore, is meaningful, intrinsically speaking. And this is this is Bavik's sense of realism, of theological realism. And so we recognize the tree for what it is because 
God has given us a mind to be able to represent objects and the objects itself are not meaningless. The objects themselves reflect the divine ideas in God. So that's just one sort of rough idea of how to articulate it. Mm. So would you say then like, when I'm like looking around my, like in life, like I, I woke up early this morning, well, I always wake up early, but I woke up and I saw the lunar eclipse this morning, um, yeah. which is pretty cool. Um, and I'm seeing like the moon and the stars um, and things like this. And I'm reflecting on this, like, it's just like, I'm, I'm like reflecting and understanding like the ideas of God. And it's so I'm like, am I experiencing God yeah. in that sense? Uh, so we got to distinguish between, um, between what you're perceiving as the unfolding of, of God's plan on the one hand, or, mm-hmm. you know, natural law in that sense. And um, you got to distinguish that sense from perceiving God himself, which is the essence of God, right? Mm-hmm. And that's not what you're seeing. So we're not panentheists, but we're saying that all of human history is the unfolding of the eternal plan of God, right? And okay. God has, he has eternally decreed that things would be intelligible and that we would be able to know things. So there's a theological foundation for epistemological realism, something to that effect. Um, so, so in reformed categories, this is called the creator creature distinction or the distinction between God as the archetype and creation as the ectype. Creation is the imprint of God, but creation is not God himself. Um, so there's, there's an analogy between creation and, and God, but there, it's not an identity, not a univocal correspondence, but an analogical correspondence. So there's lots of concepts here flying around and I get into all in the book, but that's, that's roughly where, where we're going. Mm. Okay. Yeah, Yeah, that's super helpful. Is there anything else like Gray you want to talk about before we get into like understand how how this helps us understand like God and knowledge? Um, no, those are those are the broad areas that Bob touched on when he argues for the importance of God and knowledge or theological epistemology. He argues that those are the two main main areas to talk about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that's that's great, Gray. This has been super interesting and um. I love this conversation because I didn't really know exactly where we were going to go when we started. Like I, like I told you before, like I haven't read the book. I know a little bit about like Herman Vavink and a little bit about your work, but I'm not super well versed. And I love the adventure and just like trying to understand these things. Um, Hopefully people listening can like feel the same way. So like, how's this, like we're talking, we've talked about these two like important aspects of Herman Vavink and his like epistemology. So Gray, how is this going to help us understand like God and knowledge? Well, um, so I, I think it helps us understand God and knowledge. What I mean by knowing there is in human knowing, right? Is that human knowing is radically dependent on God, right? ontologically speaking. And this is an insight that that goes all the way back down, I think, ultimately to the Bible, that, that everything holds together in God um, and that ontology precedes knowing. So that, that, that if you can know the world, it must be because the world was created in a particular way and it reflects the intelligible plan of God. So God is radically, therefore, um, the foundation for knowing, the, the principium essendi, if you want to use the older reform scholastic term, the principle of, of being, of everything. And so God has made everything um, uh, knowable. And so his general revelation is the principle of knowing for all natural knowledge. And his scriptures is the principle of knowing for all theological knowledge, right? Um, and ultimately, of course, scripture norms our reading of general revelation as well. But God is the principle of being. His revelation, both general and special, are the principles of knowing. 
So um, what I've what I've tried to show hopefully in the book is as a greater, well, not only is it just a, a study of Bobbing's thought on this, but hopefully a, an installation of confidence that that even the most mundane features of reality seem to show us uh, or seem to to vindicate again this idea that God is inescapable. So Bobbing in his philosophy of revelation, which I which I helped edit, it's his 1908 um, lectures that he gave at Princeton Seminary. Um, he argued that revelation is the secret of everything. So revelation is the secret of all existence. The, the more you pierce into the different fields of life, the more you'll actually encounter the revelation of God. Because you can't account for all of these norms, again, that you're encountering and everything. You need to account for them. And if not God, then where are they? So human knowledge is radically dependent, and God is the ontological foundation for knowing, and his revelation is the epistemological foundation for knowing. Can we put it that way? Yeah. So that's my rough summary. Again, yeah. That's that's really helpful. Thank you, Gray. I think you did a great job with that. So here's what I'm trying to understand. So God makes everything knowable. Um, so like we're looking at like all like history or science or like anything. God is the one who makes us knowable. So it seems like then like you talked about this idea of like God being inescapable and that's because like whatever we understand, whatever we come to grasp, we're understanding things that God reveals and like God's known because God's sovereign over all things. Right. So mm-hmm. even when you're trying to understand anything, like you're understanding stuff that God has made known, is that kind of the idea yes. here? That's right. That's right. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that everybody therefore needs to believe in God to know something. Mm-hmm. But, but if you, if you, if you consider the question, so everybody can take for granted that they can see a table, blah, blah, blah. But again, ask the question of how it is that 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 what are the ontological foundations for that to take place that's the question um why is it that that the universe is meaningful in itself and why is it the human mind can perceive it as it is that's that's the question that we're asking here yeah Mm -hmm. so do you think you'd have to be like a like a reformed calvinist to affirm this because like i would think that like like i lean towards like not being like a calvinist um but then like i like i still think like i could still all these same things um, of like, if God's the yeah. creator of everything and sovereign over everything, then like, these are, we're like, when we're understanding anything, we're understanding the world that God has created. Yeah. So, I mean, Bobbing ultimately in the Christian worldview would say that this is a, a Christian claim more so mm-hmm. than a reform claim. I mean, you have reform language to try to account for why it is that this is not panentheism, why it is that, that ultimately everything falls back to the decree of God. But, but he's going to argue that this is a classical Catholic universal claim. In the sense mm-hmm. of Augustine, and you know, he would he would quote a lot of the church fathers on this, the Reform scholastics on this, so many medieval thinkers on this, because it's a common Christian claim. But I do think that a Reform theologian has really attractive resources for this. Okay. I would say that a Reform theologian has really attractive resources for this because for the Reformed, there is no use, use Kuiper's phrase, there is no square inch that isn't by definition within the eternal decree of God. The unfolding of the eternal decree of god right so nothing happens by pure chance nothing just happens in the abstract everything unfolds as meaningful because it comes from that eternal plan of god i think you know depending on where you come from i think um the more you compromise that sense of history that sense of being as itself the unfolding of god's plan the the the, the more room let's say you would have for a sphere of existence that that doesn't come from that plan of God. so what is it what how are we giving meaning to it does that make sense yeah. so i think i think reform theology can can have an anchoring in that divine idea and the divine decree so 
the, the scholastics are fond of saying that that ultimately um, things are patterned in the universe because they come from the divine ideas. Um, and things are, are patterned after the divine ideas, not just that, they're also, again, the outcome of God's plan. So um, anyway, those, that's my pitch for the reformed, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I think this is super cool, Greg, because I think it, like as a Christian, it makes everything more meaningful when you think about things this way. That's like right. I remember I, I was sitting on my couch. Um, I had a day off today, which is amazing. I don't really get days off. Um, and I was just sitting there and it was noon and I finished everything I needed to do. And I was just reading and I'm like, is there really meaning in my life? If I'm just sitting here reading a book, like, isn't there something better I should be doing right now with my life? Mm-hmm. And then I kind of had this thought um, and it wasn't even, I was just like, but if this is like God's story and I'm understanding like God's story and more of the world that God created, like, surely there's meaning in like what I'm doing right now. Um, even if it's not like me, like going preaching on the street to someone right at this moment or something like that. So do you think like things like that, do they like, does it make, does that make everything more meaningful in our lives? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So remember I said at the very beginning of this conversation that, that the Kuyperians, the Neo-Calvinists, they were very critical of the secular sacred divide, you know, mm-hmm. feel God's presence just in one sphere of life, but everything else is just neutral and, and secular and, and, you know, you know, completely God absence, if that makes sense. So, but, but they are, they're trying to show that even in mundane existence, God's word is relevant. And even in mundane existence, you're reflecting something about God and it's natural revelation. And, and so there is no square inch under God in which Christ doesn't say mine, right? Kyber would argue. So yeah, everything in life is meaningful. The gospel has cosmic implications. The scriptures has cosmic implications and so don't be tempted to think that in one place you can be more um, away from God than another, right? So, of course, you're going to go to the church because that's where you're going to hear the preach word of the gospel. But Christians are called into other spheres of life because we need to be obedient in every sphere of life. And there's no, no part of life where God doesn't inform you. Mm-hmm. So one thing I'm wondering then, so I like how like um, Bob Inc. is trying to like break down this like secular versus spiritual divide because mm-hmm. um, i think that's spot on because everything that exists is like a product of like god and his creation so like where's the what's the meaning like um like i'm thinking about like so like right now um like i follow soccer a little bit so um barcelona's playing Oswan, i don't even know they're playing some random spanish team right now um and like say let's say after like after this interview i go down and like catch the last 20 minutes of the game like where like there is no like that secular versus like going to church but like where like in, in the understanding like god and like his world and his creation like where's the like meaning or like how does that connect with like god um in this yeah great, great question so the long answer to this is you should get um a book by christopher watkin called biblical critical theory okay um, it's it's a wonderful book that shows how all of modern culture all of life really points back to scriptural themes okay but I would say, I think, you know, this points us to, to the lavishness of God, right? God didn't just create a functional world where we eat just what we need, or we drink just what we need as well, or we just live lives of mundaneness. No, God, God didn't just create us for survival. God created us for lavishness. So God gave us taste buds. God gave us lots of wonderful earthly, um, um, natural things for us to enjoy. And I think sports is one of those things. So, so God didn't just create us for the sake of survival, but God created us to have an abundance of life, if that makes sense. So, you know, um, he could have just made us um, eat tasteless porridge, and that's enough, and we wouldn't have to complain about it as creatures, right? Mm-hmm. But God created us for 
uh, a particular culture where we can cultivate culinary arts and we can have refined taste buds and so on, where we can distinguish between toast and, you know, untoasted bread and stuff like that. So all not just for nourishment, but also for enjoyment. And so I think in play, you see the lavishness of God. Um, and so, you, you know, I think, I think um, you see this as well in the abundance of the beauty of creation. God didn't just create one sort of thing, but God created abundance of things for us to enjoy. So, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a tension in our modern world between the arts and the sciences. And I think if you go, just go through the sciences, then survival and technological advancement for the sake of survival become the main thing, quantifiability, survivability, and so forth. But if you go for the arts, then, you know, the, the question of utility is stifling. You're not authentic. You're not expressing yourself in your human existence. And I think Christianity comes and says, no, both are good. Um, you don't need to choose between the arts or the sciences. Both util utility on the one hand and, um, you know, non-utilitarian good. Both the painting and, you know, the, the farming industry. They're both good, right? So, so. Mm -hmm both of these things show the beauty of God's creation. I think that's different from, you know, different ancient Near Eastern religions, different Greco-Roman religions, where let's say matter is intrinsically bad and co contemplation is intrinsically good. So I think in different spheres of history, um, there's going to be binaries that actually belong together. So in the Greco-Roman world, the spiritual world is elevated, the material world is denigrated. And in other places in the secular world, the material world is, is upheld, the spiritual world is, is seen with suspicion. Christianity is always said both and, right? Mm. That's that's the short answer, maybe. Yeah, well, that's super helpful in like trying to help us recognize like the divine element and like everything, like mm -hmm. in everything. If we're thinking about it like a Christ honoring um, way, like there is like a hint of like the divine. I guess not a hint of divine, but like like this God, um, like God's sovereignty shown through all these different things um, in the world that we experience. Um, I think that has like amazing application, whether it's like recreationally or vocationally or whatever. So yeah, that's great, Gray. Absolutely. So I would encourage everyone to go pick up Chris Watkins book and read more bobbing. I literally just wrote down as you were going, I, I use Goodreads a lot because I just, right. it, it stresses me out because I have like 1500 books on there and I'm like, oh my gosh, when am I ever going to read all these books? Yeah. Um, but I'm like, oh, I need to read this, add it. And I just keep adding stuff. So good. Um, good. Let me yeah, I just, it reminds you you're finite and there's so many, so much there that you don't know about yet. So <laughs> it really does. Um, so yeah. um, this has been super helpful, Gray. And I feel like we're at a really good spot. Is there anything you want to add before we start to wrap things up here that you think would be good at this point? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, would, I just want to invite folks to consider a more holistic vision of life. And hopefully I think the neo-Calvinist tradition is, is, is a helpful tool, uh, a helpful tradition to imbibe for developing this sort of holistic vision of life. So pick up our, our book that's coming out, Neo-Calvinism, A Theological Introduction, coming out with Lexham Press in a couple of months, January 2023. Pick up God and Knowledge if you're more interested in, in this issue of, of epistemology and theology and the different fields of science that's coming together. And um, yeah, look out for, for more works in this Neo-Calvinist terrain. Mm. Well, Gray, this has been super cool and I've just really, really enjoyed this conversation. And yeah, thank you so much for coming on. I'll put a link down below where how people can follow you or connect with you. Um, and yeah, this has been super cool. I loved all this and it's really helped me personally just thinking about um, like Christianity holistically in the world. So thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate your time. Awesome. Thank you, Zach. 
Yeah. And thank you everyone for tuning in. Um, this is Here to Apologetics. I'm so glad you're here with us today. Um, if you're new, I encourage you to subscribe, leave a like, all that fun stuff. And if you value what we do, uh, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Here to Apologetics. Uh, you can join for as little as a dollar a month. But that's it. Um, Gray, one last time. Thank you so much for coming on and God bless everyone. Have a great day.